Yeah, good for him. Bit of refreshing, not dying and not being evil. He was so kind, wasn't he? I actually wrote, as soon as I saw him, I wrote, I flagged him for bad guy. I wrote, oh, Sean, Sean Bean, <laughs> that's the bad guy. Jesus I wrote Christ, it. Welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Frida. I'm Abby. And this week's movie is The Martian. Finally. I can stop doing that noise. I feel like The Martian has been an episode that's been sort of waiting to happen since we started the podcast. Yeah. I think it was the first thing I put on my list of like, I want to do this movie, but I've been waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'll stop doing stupid voices now for the entirety of the next while, I promise. So you had never seen this movie before and I'm so excited for you to tell me what you thought. I think I'm excited. Am I excited? (laughs) I love that I keep you on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell with you. Our tastes are so different that I'm like, Frida, please tell me you like this movie. <laughs> You'll never know how to predict my tastes. I'm determined. <laughs> Every now and then I'm just going to send you a curveball as well. Is this a curveball? <laughs> well, are you asking me? Am I answering right now? Or are we going to wait until we do our... Oh, no, wait. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to do a summary, am I? <laughs> and... <laughs> So wait, wait, I forgot how the show goes. How are you, Frida? <laughs> like the episode, um, episode. I don't know which episode I'm talking about. I think the one that was just released this week. You forgot to say your name at the beginning of the... Oh, yeah. yeah. That was great. Yeah, that was the Halloween yeah, one, Yeah, that was funny. It? How am I? I'm good. I just, um, I had my son's birthday today and actually Abby... Um, there's this like Australian yeah. cult birthday cookbook called the Women's Weekly Birthday Cake Cookbook, and it was released in 1980, oh, <laughs> and it has a cult following for like the last 40 years. It's the funniest thing in the world, oh my God. and it's sort of like it harkens back to like the the Australian housewives like heyday with these with these birthday cakes, yeah, and. As I do one every year. My son opens it up. You do one of He flips the- through. He flips through. He looks at each one and he like thinks really hard about which is the one he wanted. And then he chooses one. Aww. And so I did I did one today. So it's over. It's done. Amazing. Oh, my God. And immediately, of course, starts talking about what he wants next year. And I said, okay, wait, just uh- <laughs> can we have a break? <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm really happy it's over. <laughs> How about you? What's oh, up? I love that. I love this weird contrast yeah. with you that sometimes it's like, <laughs> yes, I'm an I'm a fifties Australian housewife. <laughs> I've got my women's weekly, let's go. <laughs> I I love the irony That's of it. That's your I fucking curveball right there. Curveball. <laughs> I definitely do that a little bit on purpose. But you've had your first week or first two oh. weeks of your PhD, Abby dear. I have. It's Report been great. Back. Um, and do you know what was even more amazing? What? On Friday, um, after my first two weeks of my PhD, I finally got my login details. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah, so. <laughs> I've been at home doing a lot of reading. 
actually gonna pee. Because <laughs> that's, that's so funny. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's been it's been fun. And now that I have logins and a and a card, I get to go to the university next week and do stuff. <laughs> you get to rule the so, world. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna do science. And speaking of science. <laughs> That's what we're here to talk about. I did say already I was going to stop doing funny voices, so I apologize. I will immediately stop. Um, Okay, so I am going to approach this slightly differently Mm -hmm. because there is so much in this movie and I want to get to the science as quickly as possible. And during the science, we're pretty much going to end up summarizing the movie. So instead of my normal big summary, here's a one paragraph reminder. That sound good to you? Oh, yeah, I'm on board. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) Proceed. Okay. So (laughs) this $108 million advertisement for NASA tells the story of astronaut Mark Watney and his quest to survive after being stranded on Mars. It's 2035 and the future of space exploration is bright, shiny, and most importantly, funded. A dust storm leads to an emergency evacuation in which Watney, a botanist, is lost and presumed dead. Once the dust settles and the skies are clear, we find him injured but alive. What follows is a love letter to science, and we are here for it. The challenges, the wins, the screw-ups, the near misses, but above all, zero casualties. Giving us a final act full of hope that feels like a warm hug. With that, I would just like to say thank you, Andy Weir. Frida. That was nice. Please, God, put me out of my misery and tell me <laughs> what you thought of this movie. Right off the bat, airlock drama. Right off the bat, me now, but <laughs> also the movie. Right off the bat, airlock drama. Ten minutes later, airlock drama. Half an hour later, airlock drama. Airlock drama, airlock drama. I'm so happy I called this like three episodes ago. <laughs> I'm a genius. <laughs> I called it and every movie is just giving me like, I wish that I had trademarked the term because I would be hashtag airlock drama. $10 richer. I'm sure we can. I'm sure we can go back. <laughs> we've got, we've got proof. I put it in an Instagram post somewhere. I'm sure. All right. What did I think of the movie? I thought it was very, very fun and very engaging. Yes. It was very engaging and very, very fun. That's my praise for the movie. Yay. It was fun. And it had some like good people that you were behind as well. It wasn't like uh, shitty people, yeah. villains. The villain was like uh, Mars, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing, because it's that contrast with Sunshine, isn't it? Where it's like no one was ever in danger and you were just kind of like, okay, cool. We're not waiting to looking for the disaster. We're mm. looking for the win. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, well, we're just, we, we start off in the shitty situation. Yeah. So that's where we are. We're aware of the danger. Um, a problem I had with the movie is, and then, do you know what, I'll come, it was kind of corrected by the end of the movie, the issue that I had, but I just thought it wasn't traumatic enough for him. And I just felt like oh. the situation should have been more distressing. <laughs> and he was like, oh, well. science and myself, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, shouldn't you be... <laughs> But it was corrected by the end of the movie when he gives that lecture. Hashtag movie lecture, science lecture, hashtag. When he gives that lecture and he kind of says, oh, that's his training. (laughs) His training is like solve. And I was like, huh. He summarized all astronaut movies basically. And I was was like, 
yeah, I'm here for it. His positive attitude kind of grew on me. Yeah. In the beginning, I was like, mm. and then by the end of it, I was like, I get you, mate. I get you. That's so that's so true. And it's definitely um, a topic we'll com- cover when we get to his character. So as I said, I don't want to hang about too much. I really do want us to get straight into it. But in saying that, there is a couple of points I would like to bring up beforehand. So first question to you, Fruda. Yes. How much has it cost to get Matt Damon home? Oh, shit. It's like 30 trillion dollars <laughs> or something like that. I mean, I mean, you took it too high, but OK. <laughs> Three trillion? <laughs> like, come down, come down. No, just stop talking. Three billion? <laughs> One billion dollars. So uh, there's a, this, this is a legit question. And when we were watching the movie, James said that. He was like, how much does this cost? And I was like, I bet you I think someone has already done this. And of course, someone has already done this. Thank yeah. you, Cora user Dr. Kynan Eng. For an analysis that leads to a total cost of 900 billion US dollars. 200 billion of which comes from this movie alone. What? Oh. <laughs> Getting Matt Damon <laughs> home. Is this like how much it costs to get Matt Damon home in movies? Did you not get that? <laughs> how much does it cost to get Matt Damon home from all the movies? So there's Courage Under Fire, Saving Private Ryan, Titan AE, Syriana, Green Zone, Elysium, Interstellar, and The Martian. <laughs> There's a total of getting $900 him, billion. Dollars. Getting him home. To, oh, my God. That is so good. So $200 billion to get him home for this movie, but overall. Yeah. $900 billion. I'm sorry. I didn't explain that very well at the beginning. No, no, that's my yeah. slowness. That's so good funny. Oh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. <laughs> the second point I want to bring up, speaking of nerdy stuff. Yeah. The Council of Elrond. Oh. <laughs> I hate every one of you. Is that that bit? <laughs> yeah, like that is the most accurate part of the whole movie. <laughs> and it's a pretty accurate movie, but that that took the cake. <laughs> just I the thing I appreciated the most out of it is just Sean Bean just sat right there. It's oh. <laughs> just like I love this. I love this so much. <laughs> oh, oh, delicious. Oh, God. So good. Uh, so. Uh, but that's that's what it's like hanging around science people. Like that yeah. scene for me but, was that that scene for me is exactly what it's like hanging around science people. Well, let's get into it then. Let's just get into it. Let's just do this. Yeah. Um, starting with our trope of the week, oh. Frida, what was your trope? In English, please. <laughs> That's my trope. <laughs> That's it. That's my trope. I think Michael Pena does it in English. And it actually, <laughs> my, the, the last episode, main episode that we did, The Fly, we talked about like the gibbering juniors, like smart people who yeah. just sound like they're talking gibberish to other people. Um, in English, that's all. <laughs> that's it. That's it. <laughs> what was your trope? The one um, that this movie, mine but... was uh, <laughs> mine was the group scenes. The not sorry that that's not explanatory at all. The group scenes. What <laughs> the group group scenes? <laughs> totally, I get you. I know what I mean. 
<laughs> Mine was the um, it was the oh god, it's the world shots. Like we we brought it up a little bit in in Independence Day, but it's like the groups of people at Times Square and at Trafalgar Square, and we're all watching them scream. <laughs> yeah, like, yay! Because everyone in the world. I just think I can't remember if there was anywhere other than Trafalgar Square and Times Square if there was other country scenes in that kind of thing but it's just such a thing that always comes up it's like <laughs> something is happening and the whole world must be involved so we've got to pick these stock standard places and fill them with people cheering them on but at least they didn't have the desert at a turban yeah which is this like this is true this is true <laughs> turbans they were out there they were like we don't care about this shit rice paddies like, what some dude stuck on mars oh so now he's in a desert too okay what <laughs> big whoop anyway speaking of deserts um uh dusty dry lands such as mars uh shall we just go straight into science yeah you ready for it i yeah, okay. I didn't do any research because I'm I'm waiting I'm for you psyched. to teach me. I'm teach psyched. me, Abby. I have so much shit for you right now. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I can feel it. So full disclaimer for the beginning is that there's an awful lot of topics in this movie. But because of the time that we try to keep the podcast down to, I will may end up cutting some topics. And I probably will cut the ones where they're in every single article you can possibly find on The Martian. And we'll pop the articles up anyway into the show notes. So if you are super interested, you'll find the answers there. Or just read the book. For reals, no matter what, just read the freaking book. Andy Weir explains everything very beautifully in the book. So here comes the science. Let's start with um, what I'm going to do is we have four environments, each with a cast of characters, and they have their own purpose and contribution to the overall story. So for the most part... They're all scientists. Hallelujah. <laughs> so let's go through each of the environments kind of as they come up for us, really, okay. and have a chat about them before we talk about the... And then what we'll do is go through the actual... The sequence of events of the movie and the science that occurs within that. Starting with Mars and Watney. Watney is an astronaut specializing in botany. He is on Mars as part of the Ares 3 crew and on a mission due to last 31 sols. That would be a day on Mars. Mm. On Sol 18, an emergency evacuation leads to Watney being left behind. With no way to escape and limited supplies, he has to science the shit out of Mars. Now, in the book, it says that he is a botanist and a mechanical engineer, and he's an astronaut, so he's going to have some level of serious technical training. What did you think of the... Let's let's start with Mars as an environment and the way that they set that up. Yeah. So interesting. Well, I think because it's like totally new. So I know I'm, I was so excited to learn about Mars. Just from, just from that point of view, it was so fun and interesting and engaging to watch. Oodles, oodles are fun to watch yes. <laughs> as, as yeah. nerds together watching it, nerding out about Mars. It was, it was, it was so fun, wasn't it? So fun. Yeah. And then we've got the the habitat itself. Um, and how how did you feel about the habitat? Did you feel that that would be an accurate thing? Did you expect that that's what it would be like? I just the, the inflatables like so they they bring it inflated and it sort of remains under pressure, fixed pressure the whole time. So they're living in there. And then the idea is they just deflate it, pack it up, go home. I mean, effectively, obviously, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they bring it back with them or not. They just keep Don't it know. there. Yeah, it would kind of depend on 
weight I guess and what like what's the is it necessary to bring it back or is it I yeah mean, true that just leave it as let's just like go fuck waste. up another planet exactly what? yeah no it's... <laughs> well the dude who is gone to fuck up another planet Watney um one thing I want to I want to say to you what I really enjoyed um Andy Weir the author of the book has explained in interviews that his intention was to write a science story rather than a character study so he intentionally wrote Watney as a resourceful and optimistic character. Oh, okay. And I guess like I kind of you mentioned it a while ago, um, this idea that like, you know, why is he not just falling apart? <laughs> but I suppose like if you think about it from the perspective of right, he's a botanist, he's a mechanical engineer, he's an astronaut. He has extensive training. And in terms of astronaut training, anyway, you're also going to get training in like medical care as well as a lot of other things that you might normally need to know so that you can be resourceful with the equipment that you have. And you also have a solid understanding of the equipment that you have. That's right. And then I was kind of thinking about it in like, what would your options be? So like, how how do you think you as a person would approach it? Well, I, I feel like the central thesis is that humans want to survive yeah. and will do everything they can to survive and, and won't give up. As for what would I I do, <laughs> I think yeah. that I, when he comes around to the end of the, at the end of the movie to talk about, like, you just have to get on with it, I related to that. I, I yeah. fancy myself to be a bit of a get on with it kind of person. I, break, I, would, I would be breaking down a lot more than he was, but I would still yeah. get on with it. That's the thing. Oh, I would I'd be definitely melting be having down. my weepy moments. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I respect I respect that. But um, I had no idea what was going to happen at the end. I had not looked up anything. I made sure I knew nothing. So I just did not know. These days, anything can happen in a movie. It's not guaranteed that people survive. So uh, yeah. I, knew, I, didn't, I didn't know. It was so good. So good watching being like, oh, so hopeful. are they all going to die? Yeah. Well, oh. that's the thing. And there was moments, all right, where I was concerned, where it was like, oh, well, if he can't die, they might try to put other people in danger. But they yeah. didn't. They didn't kill And the anyone. other people that potentially could have been in danger were the crew of the spaceship. Yes. So moving into the Hermes spaceship and its crew, let's just say, so we've got Jessica Chastain as Commander Lewis. She's a former U.S. Marine and a geologist and a disco fan. <laughs> we've got Michael Pena as the pilot, Major Rick Martinez Ooh. and former U.S. Air Force. Then Kate Mara as Beth Johansson, the systems operator. And Sebastian Stan, uh, hi Bucky, as Dr. Chris Beck, a flight surgeon. And Axel Henny as Dr. Alex Vogel, the navigator and chemist. How did you yourself feel about the crew dynamic? Amazing. Loved him. Such a healthy dynamic with excellent camaraderie and fan. This is the best leadership of scene out of all the movies I think I think and we've seen a lot of space movies with teams in space and I think she's taken the the top prize I reckon yeah she's so it is yeah because like again it's just how would they behave in this situation it's not like why would you have massive conflicts Mm. you've got like six what is it six seven people one two three four five six people who have been traveling together for like what the original journey time took three months, but they must have been training together for years as well. Oh, yeah. So they've developed solid relationships. You they know? wouldn't be there if they hadn't. <laughs> 
Yeah, they, w- they exactly. Wouldn't. They, they wouldn't be, be able to. Off. They wouldn't be put on that journey without having the capability to be able to work together. Correct. Well. Yeah. Who was who was your favorite crew? Do you have a favorite crew crew member? I mean, I'm gonna say Michael Pena, but just because he's just Me my too. favorite always. <laughs> Me too. Every time he turns <laughs> up in something, I'm like, oh, it's Michael Pena. <laughs> he was my favorite too. I like him a lot. I mean, I love Jessica Chastain, I've got to say. I like all of them. They were all I fucking like great. All of them. But, like, but the letter that he writes, he says, sorry we left you on Mars, we just don't like you. Like, it, yeah. <laughs> just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was great. It's that, it is, because, like, I, they, you see that that kind of dynamic, you don't see that often in these types of no. movies, and especially when you talk, like, between, like, scientists and... But that's that's a very, that's a very normal response, yes. I think, between friends and things sometimes that's how people where you could just are. go like I'm gonna make light yeah yeah that's how people are <laughs> so uh the crew were great what about the ship itself because it's quite snazzy looking mm. it, it, ha- it had the rotating um what do you call that um the thing that was a uh, to- torus so the, the grab so it sort of has the gravity in the middle and I just thought that was cool because I I was kind of like when I first saw it I was like oh okay you know classic Hollywood starship movie but it was like no the what they've done in terms of the diameter of the torus the rate of rotation would bring about um artificial gravity and it would make it make living situations yeah. while you're traveling a lot easier and better okay so the whole design and functionality of it makes sense I'm, I'm gonna bring this up I'm not gonna get into it right now because we get into it a little bit later but just to say that what Hermes is is I guess you would refer to it as a transport ship because what it actually does is it exists in orbit around Earth and then shuttles bring people from Earth to get on board and then Hermes uses ion engines to travel to Mars. And an ion engine allows for a constant small acceleration on the trip, making the trip shorter, which is why they were able to get there in 124 days instead of eight months, which is what the normal time would be for a chemical engine. Um, so we'll come back to that a little bit later, but I just wanted to, as we're talking about the ship itself, just say that that's what the ship is. Shout out to your amazing explanation about calcula- all the calculations about trajectories and all this sort of thing that you did in Sunshine because it actually helped me watch the movie. <gasps> just wanted, I just wanted to shout that oh, out cool. right now before I forget. Before I forget, ah, I just yay. like all the stuff that you've talked about with space travel to do with space travel and calculations and all of that actually came super handy when I was watching this movie. Yay. Thank you. It's almost like Thank I have you, a plan. Abby. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, Frida. <laughs> Next week on Sesame Street. <laughs> All right. Okay, so the the next thing that I want to talk about in terms of the crew to bring us into the ground-based portion of this movie is the communications aspect because we can get into it for Watney a bit later. The comms between Earth and Hermes. Let's have a quick chat mm. about this because realistically, the crew, we think that the crew wouldn't be as isolated as they are in terms of all of their communications going through mission control because how restricted would the communications realistic be, realistically be in order for them to not know that Watney was alive considering the entire planet knows that Watney is alive? Fair question. That's a good question. Yeah. Mm restrictive I guess they're very far away that's the thing then I was thinking is it radio maybe because of the distance it limits the the use the communications 
satellites that they can use that maybe limits their ability to communicate with ICE unless it's mission control. Do you think? It must. I mean, it must be because it fits the story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, well, their families have to says. communicate. Their <laughs> <laughs> we see them talking to their families in what seems to very clearly be live. Oh my God, I, I forgot about that. I thought it was video. And now, no, you're right. Because when they say that they were going to stay, how are they doing live communication? I think it's live. Unless it's one of those things where the kid is touching and they're just touching the screen. Yeah. And the kid, screen, fucking hands on the screens. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, I might have to... I just thought it was they were just talking to their families. Yeah. It didn't seem to me to be different than that. But um, it could be that they might restrict, you know, information. Maybe. I don't know, yeah. Could be. But yeah, you're, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. Well, it's interesting because it just, what it does is it leads us into the decision that they made in terms of the decision to not tell the crew mm. that Watney was alive. So I was just really interested in the psychology of this and how it has massive parallels to a real life situation in, in terms of the Columbia disaster, which we'll talk about in a minute. But how did you feel about the the contrast between the, like the Teddy versus Mitch kind of like, they shouldn't know because... They're better off not knowing versus they have a right to know. Um, yeah, I thought I thought the Jeff Daniels character was like that kind of, uh, you know, conservative, uh, sort of bureaucratic uh, leader who's sort of concerned with the mission and the PR and all these other things. Whereas it's a common sense question. Of course, you should tell them. Well, like that's not your that's not your, I mean, I guess it is your right, but they're very highly trained people. They're capable of making a decision. Like, what does he think they're going to do? It's so I'm incredibly sure. interesting that you put it that way. The reason it's so mm-hmm. interesting that you put it that way is because, as I mentioned, the Columbia disaster. Now, do you know about the Columbia disaster? I know what it is that it exploded shortly after takeoff. No, off. that's the Challenger. Like, live Oh, so there's there were two <laughs> Challenger was back in the 80s and it did explode after takeoff. Columbia was an entirely different thing that I didn't know about. And it happened in 2003. So it's not that long oh, ago. Okay. So I'm fascinated by the parallels here. So the Columbia disaster happened in 2003 when a crew of seven went into orbit for a routine research mission to study microgravity and earth science. During liftoff, some foam insulation mm-hmm. fell from the external fuel tank, which caused some cracking to occur on the heat-resistant tiles on the left wing of the shuttle. Now, things like this had happened There's on a tanks. number of other missions, but this time engineers were concerned that the damage was a bigger issue. Now, the thing is, they couldn't really determine how bad it was, and NASA made the decision not to investigate at the time that it happened while the, while the shuttle was in flight. And this sounds bonkers and I'm sure it is but the decision was made on the basis that if there is damage to the thermal protection system there is nothing that can be done to fix it so all you can do is hope that the damage is minimal and if it's not minimal the crew are going to die and on this basis the director of mission operations made the decision not to tell the crew because they believed it was better for them to have a successful mission and then unexpectedly die on re-entry than to know they might or are going to die because what can you do? You re-enter and hope it's okay, or you stay in orbit until the oxygen runs out. I'm sure you can guess the story did not end well, and on February 1st, upon re-entry, the superheated atmospheric gases rushed through the breach, forcing their way into the airframe and breaking the Columbia apart, killing all seven members of their crew. That's a terrible story. That's really sad. It is, it is incredibly sad. 
because your main concern is the mental health and stability of the crew. Is it the right call? But is it individual dependent? As you said, they're highly trained. So, well, Mark Watney's reaction, I feel like, was very telling. He was like, what the fuck? Yeah. When he found out, I feel like that says a lot. Mm. He's one of the people that's been trained to do so. So for him, it was very obvious. So if he if he thinks, I knew that when the crew found out that they that they were, were that it was withheld from them, I knew that they would understand because of how well they were trained to like work together yeah. with NASA. By the way, I didn't think I didn't think that they were going to be like mutiny. But on the other hand, when you saw Mark's reaction, it was very clear that he's like, that's insane that you didn't tell them. Like, they, sh- yeah. they should know. They would take orders. They, w- they, would, they would be able to take orders, I believe. Yeah. That's why I think it's stupid. It's like treating them a little bit like children. That's it, right? They know how to take orders. Because it, it is that yeah. thing where it's like, and it's the same with the Columbia disaster and how I feel about that, where I'm kind of like, it's mad to me that they wouldn't tell the crew. But it's also mad to me that this is a decision made by administration. Like they made that choice that they felt that this is the right Mm. decision and this is what we should do in this case. And so when you see the movie and it might seem like, oh, that wouldn't happen. And it's like, no, it fucking did happen. They literally did it. So I just thought that was really interesting. Now now I remember... Now I remember who it was because I, I remember. Now I know what you're yeah. talking about. I actually remember there was a Jewish guy. Oh, yeah, he was the first um, the first um, Israeli astronaut, I think, wasn't it? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. now I remember. Sorry, mum, for not remembering. So speaking of the administration, we'll head to NASA and we'll do NASA and JPL together. Cause I want, uh, but I do want to acknowledge they are two different places. They're not the same place. So first up on NASA, we have Jeff Daniels playing Teddy Sanders, the director of NASA, and his concern is the agency. Mm-hmm. We've got Kristen Wiig playing the Kristen, sorry, Kirsten Wig playing Annie Montrose, the director <laughs> of media relations for NASA, and her concern is with the perception of the agency. Chiwetel Ejiofor playing Vincent Kapoor, the director of Mars missions, so his concern is all of the Ares missions. Then we have Sean Bean playing Mitch Henderson, the Hermes flight director. So his concern is the safety of the crew. Mackenzie Davies plays mm-hmm. Mindy Park, a satellite planner in mission control. So she's concerned with communications. Then in JPL, we have <laughs> Benedict Wong playing Woo! Bruce Ng, the director of JPL. He's concerned with rockets and payloads. And we have Donald Glover playing Rich Purnell, an astrodynamicist uh, who comes up with the Rich Purnell maneuver. I want to say that this is my second time picking the good science movie. And I have gone and picked two movies with Benedict Wong. And we are also on a four out of 12 count for Benedict Wong being in movies. (laughs) Wait, wait. Moon, Sunshine, Martian and? Annihilation. Oh yes, he's the interrogator. <laughs> Benedict Wong. What was just like we're not obsessed with Benedict Wong. It just happens that he's just you know he he works a lot in a lot of science movies. <laughs> Gets a lot of jobs. Good for him. I was like, what's the six degrees of Wong? Like, how many movies can we go through before we come back to a Wong movie? <laughs> oh, I really like him. I like anyway, him too. Anyway, so um, so there's not too much that we need to say on the locations of NASA and JPL. There's like they're jazzed up for both places. Like they've been uh-huh. Hollywoodified. Um, Johnson Space Center is apparently more realistically like an old rundown building. 
Um, which is not surprising at all, but they do make it look cooler, but it doesn't make what JPL or NASA do mm. any less badass. So there's some similarities to back when, when I talked about Geostorm in terms of like the, this version of the future of NASA has received like a lot of funding. <laughs> Wish I mean, list. Not just to build this Hermes spaceship, but they can also send not just one man mission to Mars, but it's funded for five missions. Hello. <laughs> but... I suppose when they did the Apollo missions, they probably funded a bunch of them at the same time as well. So anyway, um, how? what did you think? What did you think of the setup and the people and all that? I was a little bit confused yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about um, all, all the moving bits and bobs. But I, but I had in general understanding that like it was run by NASA through Jeff Daniels and he was like, um, you know, using, you know, his web webinars or Zoom calls to like liaise with all the different parts of the mission. But it was all going through him. And I understood Mindy Park's job and, and that she was the one that saw through the satellites and she was, you know, but in general, I was like a little bit mm. quite confused. There was so much going on, but I knew Jeff Daniels was the boss. So that was all that yeah. mattered. There was a lot. There was a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot. There was a lot. Um, I liked mission control, right? Because normally when you see mission control, there's like people mm-hmm. everywhere and it's all buzz and it's all. Uh, uh, uh. I really like the scene. It's just Mindy Park getting her coffee, I think it was, and then just going back to her desk to work. And it was just really quiet. And there's just a couple of people around at their desks, mm. just like doing stuff. And she just sits back. It's just, it was so normal. It was so just like, yeah. We all do that. We all grab our grab our coffee yeah. or grab our whatever it was from the microwave she was getting and you just go and sit at your desk and just get on with shit. You know, there was no hyped up buzz, buzz, buzz atmosphere. <laughs> it's like, it's cool. Yes, I agree with you. It was just normal working people, computers, coffee, <laughs> yeah. you know, general bustle. Very refreshing. How did you feel about the JPL team scenes? Because I loved all of those scenes. I just liked the big group of engineers that are all in on the <laughs> chat. Like, around. It's just showing. It's like there's a lot of people in on this. It really kind of highlights it. There was a couple of girls. Not that many. When are you going to have it done? And yeah. like, <laughs> Benedict Vaughn's yeah. facial expressions in every call was like amazing. I know. Like, I can picture this happening. Okay, whatever. When are you going to have it done? And they're like, oh, like uh, this phone call is wasting my time. <laughs> Such an amazing mess. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I wanted to talk about this section so much, the reason I wanted to like kind of talk about um, the people involved here are because we never really get to see the admin side of science, you know? Oh, yeah. It's not something that's hugely brought up in movies, and it is a big deal. Like, the whole side of every project has these issues where it's like, okay, here's what we can do with what we have. Here's what we can do in the time that we have, and here's what we can do with the money that we Mm -hmm, have. mm -hmm. And there are people that have to make those decisions. Yeah. Do you know? It's not just like... Like with some movies we've seen where it's just one guy and he just suddenly seems to have all, like unlimited resources and is capable of doing absolutely everything because he's just a genius. So he just whips everything up and it's all cool. Absolutely. And as you said, then they suddenly have weapons with <laughs> with displays and logos. <laughs> but um, but yeah, this this was a more kind of a realistic like you've got the guy, as you said, Je- um. Jeff Daniels, you've got the guy in leadership who has to make the decisions whether they're liked or not. You've got the PR person who, you know, seems a bit cold because 
like how much does she care about Watney himself but she's like I, I gotta care about the agency like this is my job I need to care about how we're perceived so we gotta do shit to make sure we look mm-hmm. good you've got Vincent Kapoor who like he cares about Watney but also he's the director of all five Ares missions and he's like you cannot cancel my future missions like we've like we've got to manage this so that the other missions aren't jeopardized and our funding isn't cut and then you've just got that one person good old Mitch little Mitch in the in the corner Sean Bean who actually is like hey what about the crew and what What about my guys how about them I care about everyone had their area of interest and it was all about those things all working together and that is completely realistic and I love what you said about engineers basically mm-hmm. saying, like, I can do it quickly or we can do it amazingly. But, like, you can't get it to be quick, cheap, yeah. amazing. And, yeah, it's the, the, the chaos of collaborative agencies working together was so – it felt really real and really accurate. Just the absolute mayhem of the situation. Yeah. It was fun. It was really fun to watch refreshing yeah there was a there was a moment where they were doing a press conferencing and a reporter says to the teddy character are you going to resign it's like fuck no (laughs) and i just get really tired of these like high stakes low tolerance view it's such bullshit yeah because that's going to help the situation right now he resigns someone else has to come in then someone who doesn't really know what's going on and then there's a bunch of administrative crap and then there's a hiring thing and it's like oh let's just ignore the dude stuck on another planet (sighs) Speaking oh, of the, the press conference, I loved so much the, the scene of the press conference mm. and this shot where they where they, he goes, we're working on that. We're looking into that. And that was like the end of the press conference. So he so just didn't give a fuck. He cares about the mission and he cares yeah. about he cares about the work. Like, yes, he's, he understands there's so many things to balance out and he understands decisions yeah. have to be tough. But he's a good guy and he's focused on the work and the, he couldn't give a F about the press conference stuff and he's just like, whatever, whatever. No, I'm not going to resign. Blah, blah, blah. Next. I loved it. It was so good that little that press conference bit. I just wanted to bring that yeah. up and and give it a little bit of respect because it was great. Yes, no, I totally agree with you. Um, and then the respect that we also have to give is just the existence of Sean Bean in this movie. <laughs> yeah, good for him. Bit of refreshing, not dying and not being evil. <laughs> he was so kind, wasn't he? I actually wrote as soon as I saw him. I wrote, I flagged him for bad guy. I wrote, oh, Sean, Sean Bean, <laughs> that's the bad guy. I wrote it. Um, so moving on, there's a nod that I would like to give to Eddie Ko as Gao Ming, uh, the chief scientist at the China National Space Administration, and to Chen Shu as Zhu Tao, the deputy chief uh. scientist. Um, the roles were super limited, but I will say that like China's space program seems to be advancing pretty quickly. They definitely have their sights set on Mars and they're aiming for a crewed mission sometime around the 2040s. I kind of I see the relevance of having them connected within this movie. Also good for them. Yeah, well, like I love the wishful thinking of the of the massively peaceful and cooperative <laughs> relationship <Yeah>. between <laughs> the space agencies, <laughs> China and the US. Like, I'm literally... Okay. <laughs> I wrote, I wrote it's down. It's secret, but we'll give it to the US. When we get to the science rocket thing where I did write down, like the um, the fact that China was willing to just give it to the US is the most unbelievable part about this whole movie. <laughs> it's <just> like... it's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> but what's super fun is when I was looking at the Chinese stuff, because I'm such a dork, yeah, I got are. really into the 
terms they use for their astronauts. It's not universal, right? Astronaut is used by the US, Canada, Europe and Japan and it comes from the Greek words astron for star and nauts for sailor. So they're star sailors. Yeah. Uh, cosmonauts is used in Russia and it comes from the Greek word cosmos meaning universe so it's universe sailor and in China they use taikonauts from the Chinese word taikong for space being space sailors so everybody is a sailor now don't at me I know that taikonaut is the English language term and there are more technical Chinese terms but this is just fun so chill now what's more fun is while they're all sailors Watney is a space pirate And if we want to stick with Greek, as we tend to do, the Greek for space seems to be a little bit more the space around you. So I'm going to stay with cosmos. And pirate is peritis. So Watney is a cosmoperitis. I've made up a word. Hashtag cosmoperitis. Hashtag space pirate. (laughs) That was very nerdy, that bit with the the technically, you know, maritime law and therefore I'm a pirate. I thought that was that was wonderfully nerdy. Good nod. Can I get some props for Cosmo Paratis, please? I checked this with my Greek friend. It stands up. <laughs> Cosmo Paratis. I'm all over it. <laughs> He's a Cosmo Paratis. Cosmo Paratis. That's like the Latin. Uh, that, then that would yeah. be the Latin derivation of the Greek term. Cosmo Paratis. Leading to the English. Co- there we go. <laughs> Star pirate. So, space pirate. <laughs> I really do like the dialogue in this movie. And again, just highlighting like Andy Weir wrote a beautifully smart, accurate book. And I love that they I think that between him and Drew Goddard's screenplay, they did a wonderful job of conveying the story and science without treating the audience like they're stupid. So here comes the science. Now, uh, when you have a really good science movie, people get way more nitpicky and we tend to not allow as much leeway into the realism of as we would with other movies. Now. There's a trade-off between scientific accuracy and artistic qualities. We know this. We've talked about this with movies before. Plot devices are required for the storytelling. And storytelling is what we're going for with movies. That's true. (laughs) Right. Isn't it? I feel like that's what they're aiming for. Yes. Yes. It's emotional. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to... I'm just going to... There's... A couple of main points that I'm just going to get out of the way right now. These are things that are not accurate. Okay? So let's just deal with them. Put them over. Dust storms. It's definitely a plot device and only a plot device. Now, the thing is, it's not that a storm on Mars is impossible. The problem is that the Martian atmosphere is much thinner than ours. Uh, It's on a comparison of about like 1% the density of our atmosphere. So the same inertia and dynamic force of an Earth storm would feel like a light breeze on Mars. The idea that the storm at the beginning that does the whole setup, like it would not cause the damage that it is, has, is seen to have done. But it's a plot device and we need something to set it up. We need something Aww. to create the issue. Aww. The dust storm itself would exist. It's just the it force such... of it wouldn't exist. At the, you know, at them Aww. saying it's like, well, I think they say it's about 170 miles per hour the force would not feel like 175 okay. miles per hour. It would feel a lot less, like 70. I feel disappointed. Oh, I'm sorry. Because it's, it's such a big part of the movie of like pushing the story along is the crazy yeah. weather on Mars. I'm sad. Now I'm sad. I'm sorry. Aww. 
But that's why I'm giving that's you the. Okay. I'm just giving you this stuff now so that you can just let it all go Heads and then up. we'll talk about the good stuff. Okay. Okay. So all right, what else? What's the, the next other point? Things? Is gravity. Okay. The gravity on Mars is less than what it would be on Earth, but the difference wouldn't be that noticeable due to the weight of the spacesuits that they're wearing. Okay. Now, in reality, you would still see some effects, but Ridley Scott was like, fuck it, why bother? It's not necessary to the plot and it's too much work to have to show him having a slight like, effect of gravity in every scene outside. Totally. So they just went, we're not doing it, let it go. Yeah. And not mad about it. Not mad about it either. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. sure they'll Good. be happy Good. to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but just redo everything because Frida's really upset about the dust storm. We're, we've signed off on the other issue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, next up is radiation. Admittedly, there's a limit to the amount of radiation that astronauts are allowed to be exposed to. It's termed the annual permissible dosage. And the time of travel to get to Mars, as well as the radiation on the surface of Mars and the travel back already would exceed what the permissible radiation dosage the astronauts would be allowed to be exposed to, um, not taking into account the excess years that he would spend on the planet. But this is all in relation to like our current technology. And considering the fact that one of the main aims right now is to be able to do a manned mission to Mars, this is being worked on. It's it's a problem and it's a problem where mm. they are trying to come up with solutions for it and I'm sure at some point they will come up with a solution so we can definitely take it that by the time they do a manned mission to Mars they have figured out how to deal with the radiation levels. So again, not mad about it. They've solved it. Again, that's fine. It's fine. They don't have to, a movie doesn't have to solve every like little thing. It, it's, it's, this movie is saying let's just say we solved a lot of the problems all of the problems sorry associated with travel to mars and at some point in the future we can now travel to mars we all agreed that at some point that's going to happen agreed great all right let's yes. tell a story about that yeah that's it exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh, speaking of telling a story let's go through the escapades of cosmoparities what now sorry i'm really happy about my word Nice. I like it. Like a door. I like it. Right. Let's start Cosmo- out on Mars. Cosmoparatus. Cosmoparatus. Down for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Hashtag you heard it here first. Trademarked. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's start out on Mars. So as we said, the main premise that an unexpected storm forces an evacuation, knocks out the comm tower and damages Watney's suit, making the crew think he is dead. In the story, NASA uses the Hermes ship to travel to Mars and then they use a Mars descent vehicle to travel to the surface. In order to get off the surface, they need to be able to generate the power to escape the gravitational pull of the planet and reach Hermes. This requires the Mars ascent vehicle, the MAV. This did not arrive with the Hermes. It was sent in advance to ensure that when the crew arrived, they would have the ability to leave. So they would never have sent the Hermes to Mars if the MAV had not landed safely and been there to enable them to be able to get off the planet once they got on the planet. So when the team landed, they set up the communication antenna, which allowed the HAB to be connected to the MAV, Hermes and NASA. Um, In the storm, this antenna is what stabs Watney, cutting the vital sensor in the suit and leading to the crew believing he is dead. And this also means that he, A, has no way off, B, has no way to communicate with anyone and C, has a hole in his stomach. (laughs) Self-surgery. 
I didn't look at this at all, Frida. Tell me you know what's going on here. Because that's the one part in the movie where I was just like, firstly, I was like grossed out. So disgusting. But also I was just like, how do you, what, what, what is happening? Yeah. So he, so he gets stabbed with the antenna and he immediately, well, treats himself using a mirror, which seems to be there for the purposes of self-surgery. Because it's the mirror is sort of has a little arm um, that allows you to like fix it and then look at yourself. But I, when I was watching it, I knew that this has happened. I was like, I've read stories about this. People that have been on trips, expeditions in Antarctica, and been forced to do surgery on themselves. And there are two oh. stories of people that did that. Number one was this is the sixth Soviet Antarctic expedition in 1960. <clears throat> the guy's name was Leonard Ro- Rogozov, and he was the team's doctor. And he removed his own appendix, actually. Ooh. Yeah, he recognized oh the God. signs. <clears throat> he recognized the signs. He wrote in his diary, I did not sleep at all last night. It hurts like the devil. A snowstorm whipping through my soul, wailing like a hundred jackals. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, so, a la Mark Watney, he did it. Oh my god. He took it out himself. He medicated himself. He made an incision. I'm sorry. Hold on a second right now. Russia, I apologize. <laughs> now, tell me about Watney. Two weeks later, back to full health. Anyway, the next story, there's one more story. This time, a woman, also the doctor on a mission to Antarctica. Her name is Jerry Nielsen. And actually, she, this is in 1999, she diagnosed herself with breast cancer. She was the doctor. Oh. She, she found a lump. She diagnosed herself and she began to treat herself. So the US Air Force parachuted, um, uh, um, chemotherapy supplies to her and she started to treat herself and then it was later revealed that she performed a biopsy on herself (gasps) she got some help from the non-medical crew who practiced using needles on a raw chicken (gasps) and while she was treating herself she carried on her duties as a doctor for the 41 person research group Wow. When I when I saw it in the movie Mark Watney during the surgery, I was like, Yeah, these that's happens. That that that's has really cool. happens from time to time. It was it was it was disgusting, but it was really impressive. Oh he's such a good yeah. I felt like he acted that scene very well, but it, yeah, yeah, I wanted to talk about that. That's really cool. I really like that now because it's something that I see, you know, you see it in movies all the time and I'm always just like as if <laughs> So it's good to know that, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> no, there are people that are that, are that tough. We'll put that in the episode notes. Back to the main program. Well done. Thank oh, you. You're welcome. Back to the... <laughs> so, so, Watney is alive and he is remaining alive, thank you to self-surgery, which we now know is entirely possible. <laughs> He's alive, he has shelter and he has a sense of humour. He evaluates exactly what a situation is and realises he is fucked. The things that he needs are food and communications. 
he has neither Water. Uh, but this dude is super smart and trained to deal with tricky situations and because he's crazy resourceful we can come up with some solutions that are super cool so let's talk about the food first he has food rations that were for six people oh. there's enough protein to cover him until the next Ares mission arrives which is in four years I think because the way that they do the food rations they give them five times the amount of protein they actually need or something like that he also has enough vitamins to cover okay. his general nutrition needs for that time. The thing that he doesn't have is calories. Everyone's favorite vegetable, potato. Mm. I'm allowed to do that in my own. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Potatoes have good calorie nutrition trade-off and they're pretty robust unless they're hit by a blight. Let's not go there. Recent studies from around 2018 now indicate that the Martian soil Ugh. may not be as viable as previously thought in terms of growing crops. But the ideas used in the book and the movie at the time of writing are really sound. So based on the mineral and chemical content, it was thought possible to grow plants in Martian soil. And in theory, using human waste to build up the soil is also possible. It's just a bit dangerous without processing to remove heavy metals and pathogens. So he has soil. He has fertilizer. He has potatoes. He just needs water. And he did this by taking hydrazine from the rocket fuel and then dissociating, so splitting it into its mm. constituent parts, nitrogen and hydrogen, and then burning the hydrogen with oxygen to make water, causing the chemical reaction to create H2O. This is all entirely achievable and it will work and it will give you water. It's just super dangerous, as he says, I think quite a bit in the movie. This is really dangerous. What did you think of that whole, the growing the crops and the getting the water and everything? Mm. Yeah, I, I thought I sort of I had it, I had in the back of my mind all these kind of thoughts saying, look, it's not a problem he has to solve right now, but surely he's kind of poisoning himself mm. one way or the other with a lot of these things. But he, he doesn't have to worry. He just has to survive till for a year. But uh, I, I loved it. The, the water making scene. The, first of all, the potato scene was just fantastic. It was great. And I, I, that's, that's the thing that I'd heard about the movie, actually, in the PR, about how the human excrement was used and da, 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 you know. I love how they, they, they in the evacuated toilet, so everybody's excrement was saved and labeled and vacuum packed. And I just thought, really? Yeah. Why was it labeled per person? Uh, why? I, that's the thing. I was like, I don't get why you're doing this. Why, why are you not just leaving it there? Are you Should bringing it back? It? Do you have to test it Are you it examining later? it? But as I said, in the, in the first like half an hour of the movie, I was like, well, is that? Oh, really? Why do you think? They label it? Oh, like that was me the whole movie. Like, <laughs> it just got worse on earth when I was like, who's that guy? Really? What are they doing? Oh. Anyway, um, I love when it, when it blew up. And I think... When, when it blew up, when he his first attempt at the water and he didn't um, calibrate for the air that he was breathing on it. And I love the sort of, boo! And I love that he was smoking and he was all cut up. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was great fun. Great fun. <laughs> Just fun, actually, yeah. I would say. F-U-N. Yeah. <laughs> so that's his food sorted <laughs> out. Next up is the comms issue. Yeah. We currently have satellites orbiting Mars, taking images of the surface, analyzing the atmosphere. And one of those satellites is taking images of the Ares 3 landing site and noticing movements. 
The solar panels mm. have been cleared and the rover has changed position. They quickly realise that Watney is alive and while tracking his movements, Vincent Kapoor realises where he's headed because nearby to where the Ares, Ares is a real site on Mars and it is the place where Pathfinder landed. How 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 do you think about this before I say what what the kind of realities of it is? How How do you... Did you like this? Did you think it was mad? I'm actually just so excited for you to explain it to me, to be honest, because you, okay. you have forbidden me to, uh, to, to do any. And I, I just want to know about it, to be honest, because. OK, it, OK, cool. Tell me. So, <sighs> Pathfinder and Sojourner yeah. were a lander and rover that touched down on Mars in 1997. Right. Yeah. The thing is, they went offline after a few months after outdoing their expected mission time. But they didn't stop working because anything bad happened. They stopped working because their batteries died. Mm. Now, in reality, there's very cold temperatures on Mars during the night. So without batteries to keep the electrics powered and and heated in some way, then it's possible that they could have broken beyond repair. But there's no way to know that without digging it up and checking it out. And it is theoretically possible that if you just replace the batteries on Pathfinder right now and repower the lander, that you could entirely use it to communicate oh. with NASA. It's entirely possible. And this this is coming from Lavery, a NASA scientist who worked on the Pathfinder oh, mission. Oh, shit. I thought it was so cool. And I was uh, I wish I could explain a little bit more about why they connected with the replica rather than just directly to NASA communications but I guess maybe because of the time difference between 97 to whatever 2035 that the the direct connection that he could possibly hope for would be with the replica mm. if it's connected in he was he, yeah he, he he was so the, f- the f- first one when they took they sort of went to the pathfinder to try to figure out what they thought he was doing it reminded me of the scene in apollo 13 where they do a similar thing oh yeah they o- always know exactly and then they kind of revisit it later they you know the idea that they have a working replica so that they can always figure out uh, how to troubleshoot a situation that that was an apollo 13 bit which was like oh, awesome part of the movie but then it seemed like that they were actually communicating between the two pathfinders right. it wasn't just like troubleshooting like it seemed to me that right yeah. it was receiving but i suppose they were communicating with each other i suppose actually as you said yeah. that because i missed that and that makes more sense now if they originally went to it to try to figure out why he was going to pathfinder and then they set it up yeah. and they realize, oh, maybe he'll try to use it to communicate if he can get it going. Then uh-huh. if Pathfinder on Mars can control the camera and Pathfinder replica, then that's how they can then yeah. communicate. So they must have just figured that out, that that's a logical thing mm. that you would do. And it totally makes sense. But it's just, yeah. it's cool. It's, maybe back- it's a thing and it's real and it's there. It's real. Maybe back in the day on the Pathfinder mission that like they would use the Pathfinder on Earth to control the Pathfinder on Mars. Maybe. Like Yeah. Like like in like in like in that Marvel movie, what's it called? Black Panther. Oh. <laughs> Stop. When it's just, she sits in the car. Not allowed. Stop. Not allowed. No. Not allowed to talk <laughs> about it. I'm sorry. You're banished from talking it's about cool, Marvel movies. It's cool though. <laughs> um. Sorry. No, but yeah, so it's 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 great. But um, if anyone does know the legit answer, please do let us know. NASA now knows that he's alive, but they all know that he can only survive for a limited time. So the next step 
is to try to get a supply ship to him. Send him some more supplies so that he can survive until the Ares 4. In order to do this, they have to meet the home and transfer window. We talked about this in our episode on Sunshine. I don't really want to go over it too much again, but it's a moment in Mars's orbit when it's closest to Earth, so you can do an orbit transfer, save on fuel and time. The problem is that they don't have a supply ship ready to go and the clock is ticking. And this is where we get a lot of shots of Benedict Wong looking super stressed. (laughs) I love that line. I'm going to need a change of pants. Oh my God. So good. Yeah, no, that's great. (laughs) To speed up the launch, the director, Teddy, makes the bold decision to skip some testing stages. Again, this harks back to the Columbia disaster and the following report that criticized some of the culture of NASA. Because it seems that there was a tendency to say, well, it's not caused problems before and we don't have the money to fix it. So just go with it. It'll be fine. Mm -hmm. You can appreciate the decision because, again, what else are they going to do? But as happens in movies and real life, it does become a problem and the supply ship is lost. Terrible. Did you understand what happened there? I understood that. Why the supply ship? No, I understood that they skipped the inspections and something that they didn't that they skipped resulted in the explosion. That was my understanding of it. (laughs) That was it. So, I mean, that's it pretty much. But like the the kind of more detailed version of it is that it's all related to the shifting of the payload. What happened was they didn't complete all of the testing on how the payload would react to the forces during the flight. Mm. So the rations that they were sending uh, liquefied under the forces involved in the takeoff because of all the vibrations. And the rocket that they were using wasn't designed for the purpose of containing a liquid payload. So this was now able to shift around, generating percussive forces. Then a second issue was that one of the bolts was defective. And this wasn't picked up because they skipped the testing that would have picked up on that defective bolt. So when that bolt failed, the excess pressure was applied to the other bolts, which then caused them all to fail and tear the rocket apart, exploding it all up. So the kind of failure was in that one test about the bolt and the not checking about how the rocket would react to the to using to to this payload of rations, which it wasn't designed to be used for. Mm-hmm. But I feel like you kind of understand it. You're under so much time pressure and you're at a point where you're like, we have to send it. If we don't send it, there's nothing else we can do. With, of course, they're still thinking about safety, but like they've decided to skirt on things that seemed the least likely to cause an issue and then were the things that caused the issue. <laughs> it was probably the low point in the movie, but in a narrative sense as well, because yeah. it was all very quick and it was all very obvious it was going to happen. It was like that they had to give you like, this is a path out and then it fails and it, it all happened pretty quickly. Yeah. It, it was definitely like the, this is probably the, the shittiest part of the movie because doy. Um, yeah, but it, it was quick. In its defense, it was a it was a pretty quick, pretty quick detour from the plot. But uh, no, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it was things liquefying because of the force of takeoff, really. Yeah. Fuck. God, that is so interesting. Yeah. That stuff is just fascinating. It's amazing, Love like it. the work that has to be put into achieving, like yeah, to be able to do these things. Um, Which I'm level. learning more and more. From you, Abby. Yeah. <laughs> Abigail. Um, but so 
as you said, that was a low point because now the supply yeah. ship is gone and there's no there's no supplies on the way to Watney. Yeah. Luckily, he still has a lot of beautifully growing potato plants now. Lovely. Until one day he opens the door and the hub explodes. <laughs> so, <laughs> again, did you get this? Did you did you see what happened here, or was it just a like what? I need you to remind me what caused it. That during the storm, some part received a bit of damage and then the excessive wear and tear from continuing to use the airlock and the extended time on the planet led to excess stress on the damaged area. And then just one day as he's going to use the airlock, the tear finally kind of breaks through and then it causes this like explosive decompression, which just blows the entire airlock off. And is this the scene where he has to duct tape himself in the helmet? Yes. yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. This is this is the scene. I mean, <clears throat> this is when everything's kind of going really well, and you're like, "Wow, this movie's cheery," and then suddenly, yeah. food gone, helmet cracked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a cool scene. Duct tape go. Took, took the duct tape. Yeah. <laughs> I like that he was duct taping himself in an emergency, and like he couldn't. He was like, Ugh! and it was twisted. You know, like he took he t- ripped it off and yeah. then like twisted to get like another one, and it was. <laughs> Yeah, duct tape. That's, that's how duct tape. Yeah, it's such, yeah. It's such a moment of all of us. <laughs> twist and you're like, fuck, 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 fuck. You have to like untwist it. It's stuck. It's like, yeah, it, it was, it was awesome. Duct tape, duct tape to the rescue, though. Yeah, one hundred. And then what does what does he do to to solve to get out of that situation? He does something pretty interesting, which is again involving duct yeah. tape. The tarp. Yeah. <laughs> Tops. Tarps. Hashtag top to the rescue. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that that was the whole thing. Like, because with the, the helmet was one thing that I was just kind of like, no. What? Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and then like I looked it up and someone was like, well, so long as the pressure is like um, 30% or something, then yeah, that'll work. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, cool. And then again, the duct tape and the tarp. I was just like, What? surely not but that was one of my what really and my partner was like sure why not if it holds it holds (laughs) this is the thing and this to be fair is the only part in the movie that causes us contradiction it's the only failure in the story writing yeah because the thing is the tarp and the duct tape would work the tarp and the duct tape would work because of the atmosphere on mars being so mm. like 1% the density of Earth uh, because the storms wouldn't uh-huh. be strong enough to cause any damage. So it would totally work. But it doesn't work in the context of saying that the storms were enough to That's right. destroy everything at the beginning. So it's the one failure that kind of just makes me go, oh, man, <laughs> that sucks. It, it's- when I, um, because it was sort of after a big crisis, I knew from a narrative storytelling point of view that it was going to hold. Yeah. Weirdly. I understood that he, that was the solution to the problem because it would not make sense from narrative wise for him to do that and for that to break yeah. at that point in the movie. Oh. So I just mentally put it to the side. But watching it, I was like, come on. Yeah. We just saw things get ripped off from the storms. <laughs> And then now it's sort of like that was the thing, and I was like, and he sat right next to it with his helmet off. I was like, what? So, I, so then that's that's how I was like, okay, well, I guess he's safe now because his helmet's off. But, oof. <laughs> but also that but, scene is devastating. 
it, to me, it was a relief when it happened because I knew something had to fucking happen because it was just way too cheery for the for, for the danger of the situation. It was way too cheery. So I was like, what's come on? And, and then Jeff Daniels says, this is going to be great unless something goes wrong. And then I went, here's the part in the movie where something goes wrong. And then it was like, and I was like, thank God. <laughs> Terrible. I'm oh, way too God. dreary for how positive this movie is. <laughs> we'll talk about that at the end of the wrap up, but okay. uh, I was relieved. <laughs> okay. It's frozen, so, frozen potatoes. Frozen potatoes. Sorry. You know, I told you. Fucking like people, people that think that the Irish love potatoes don't understand what the potato famine was. <laughs> what are you gonna do? The potatoes are gone. The supply ship is gone. Things are starting to look a bit like, oh, what's what's going to happen? What are they going to do? Vicodin. But also, <laughs> that's what you, that's what you do. Brill. I love his little But touches. wait, sorry. The Hermes but, yeah. crew now knows that he's alive. That's right. And enter the Chinese, who have secretly been working on new tech for their own space program. So not only do they have a shuttle that is ready to be launched, they also offer it to the US. And I said earlier, this is the most unbelievable point in the entire movie. (laughs) But let's say it's for true. (laughs) This is where we get another big decision dilemma. And the decision dilemma comes thank you to astrodynamicist Rich Purnell and the Purnell Maneuver. Again, we talked about slingshots in the Sunshine episode, so I'm going to ignore that part. And I'm also going to ignore the part that they portray it as a brand new idea, because it's very much not. (laughs) What we can say is that Hermes was supposed to approach Earth with a month-long deceleration and then enter low Earth orbit. But instead, what it does is it accelerates using its ion engines to increase momentum and perform a flyby using Earth's gravity to perform a gravity assist, which increases their momentum further. They then had a 322-day trip back to Mars, but it couldn't enter orbit as before because it had already used its extra propellant accelerating around Earth. So what they had to do was perform a flyby around Mars, which is why Watney needed to intercept them. The MAV for the Ares 4 crew is already there. Mm. No, the MAV is designed to get up to a lower orbit around Mars and meet Hermes anyway. Ah. But because they're doing a flyby and they're not going to be in orbit, that's why he has to strip the MAV of weight to give it, to make it lighter so that it can get extra velocity <sighs> so it can get up higher and meet the Hermes as it's doing the flyby. And then on the flyby, they get another gravity assist boost, which sends them back to Earth, taking 221 more days. And then on the return, they're able to use the original deceleration with their remaining fuel to go into low Earth orbit. Mathematically, this is definitely possible. If it's using ion engines, which it is. And that's the point. I've seen some stuff going on about the Rich Purnell maneuver and saying, oh, but it wouldn't meet the home and transfer window and blah, blah, blah. But Mm. so if you think about it, right, they're leaving Earth to go to Mars for 30 days and then come back. So what they want is throughout that entire time for Mars to be closest to Earth as it could be, which would suggest that they would leave before the transfer window, like earlier, so that when it's there, the tra- like they're still close to Mars and Earth are still quite close together, which is why they leave within 24 hours. They say that in the uh. movie that like it's safer 
because of the earlier they leave, the closer they still are to Earth. Whereas if they waited longer in Mars's orbit, Mars is still moving further away from Earth. But it's still yeah. all entirely possible because of ion engines. In that whole sequence, there are a few things in there which which I just love that they didn't make an issue out of. For example, that there wasn't an issue at any point with the fuel quantities they had. Yeah. So they were able to be generous with with their maneuvers because they had plenty of fuel. That was just one part of the movie that I thought it didn't give us conflict with that, which so many movies do. They just had a lot of fuel. They seemed prepared. It was like a functioning crew on a functioning ship. Yeah. But uh, just, just again, like, the fact that we spent time talking about this in the other episodes really paid off. I feel like our our podcast in themselves is like a setup and a payoff there of having these discussions and then it heavily paying off when it com- comes around to this episode. Yeah. Well, it was really good. It was a fantastic sequence. Yeah, I just But the, his his Mav thing that with the mm. ooh, the that whole thing with him having oh. to strip everything off and them well, instructing we're going to get and... into that now so yes. um what i yes. what i it's just want to say just before we move into it is that in terms yeah. of the the rich Purnell maneuver and the trajectory um that are calculated for that there is a person called laura burke of the nasa glenn research center where they are yeah. the main research center for nasa that are working on ion propulsion wrote an examination of the trajectory performed in the rich Purnell maneuver saying that like with this type of engine it's entirely plausible it holds up for the class of spaceship presented in the movie and is consistent with the rules of orbital mechanics and I'm obsessed with it and I'll, I'll link to the paper but I just think it's amazing a real NASA person wrote a real report on this and said it's possible <laughs> so I love it <laughs> thank you so I didn't doubt we it. are nearly there because the last thing, as you just mentioned, we need to talk about is the escape oh. because you want to send them into space under a tarp. Yes, they fucking do. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the biggest obstacles for a trip to Mars is this getting off the planet once you land. Because everything sent to Mars so far has been orbital satellites or landers and rovers, and they're not designed to leave again. Being able to equip a shuttle that can land and leave without refueling is just not something that we can do. So the methods in this movie, while not currently our tech, are good ideas on what future possible missions might do. So in this movie, we have an escape vehicle ready and waiting. How how did you feel about this, this whole <laughs> sequence, this whole end <laughs> bit of the... The Mav, the travel to the Mav, the Mav, the yeah. up in the air. It was a, it was an excellent payoff. <clears throat> the Mav from the beginning, the fact that they had the escape vehicle was like one of the first things they're talking about in the beginning that the Mav has to stay vertical. If it tips, we can't get it back up. They have to evacuate. So the Mav and then it paying off at the end with the Mav. You're saying from the follow up, the subsequent trip to Mars would be using that mm. Mav. So then he goes to that map and they basically yeah. start telling you to strip it away from everything because it's going to be reaching much higher speeds than it would otherwise and they want to shed every bit of metal. Yeah, yeah. it was it was super exciting um, and sort of, is this really happening? Could it really be? Surely he can't survive something like that. Well, the thing is he, he could. Well, he did in the movie. Because... So proof well this is the thing so we we then think about it you look at it and like when i first watched it i was just like what but it's like there's no windows it's a top what the fuck but he's not going through earth's atmosphere 
and in getting through this like 1% density atmosphere basically he needs to uh, get high enough so that the atmosphere isn't relevant anymore but he needs to go slow enough at the beginning so that the atmosphere doesn't become a threat this is all in like a, a thrust profile you just need a slow acceleration so that the atmosphere isn't pushing too much on him as he's going up through it but a fast enough acceleration that he gets high as quickly as he can so that then the atmosphere is not uh-huh. an issue anymore and it doesn't uh-huh. matter and he can be in space yeah. under a tarp it's fine but, but, but it's just surviving the the speed <laughs> the speed that you'll be going up there and the and the and the um the drag things that you might not necessarily yeah. experience if you're in like a tightly enclosed space and he passes out it felt accurate i mean like what do i yeah. what, what do we know but you know in terms of escaping mars but it like none of that felt the danger felt very real mm. and his response to it felt very yeah. real and terrifying and rightly so so it was like a very blood pumping scene it was a great scene to cap off the movie really was considering how cheery he was and suddenly he's he's not so cheery no more because it's so close home is so close it's not a joke anymore like his whole demeanor of like fuck yeah. it <laughs> Um, it's gone because, well, now he's close. So he can start to get desperate, basically. And it's like I said, it's that moment for me was the like really teary moment was when, when he's there and he's ready to go. And like, you know, he's just, he's this one one little person on his own just waiting and hoping that this is going to work. And then he hears Commander Lewis's voice and it's like, they're Aww. actually there, you know? They're actually, they've come for him. They're there. He's not alone anymore. Uh, and like at that point, he's been alone for a year and a half, I think it is, um, that he's been on the yeah. planet. And like, it's just such a lovely moment. And I love that nobody else was in danger. And it wasn't like, oh, now we're going to kill a bunch of the crew. It was all about everyone surviving. And they got him and they get him in. And everyone yeah. is so happy to see him. And everyone is so thankful. And it's just, oh, it was lovely. It just, I just like I said it felt like a warm hug it's really nice <laughs> yeah yeah totally <laughs> the movie was a little bit of a warm hug actually yeah I'm grateful a science <laughs> hug <laughs> a science hug but also thanks for not killing anybody thanks yeah. for letting everyone survive it was sweet it was a, it was a sweet sweet yeah movie <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah it is it is a sweet sweet movie um, but every movie has <laughs> moments they all have moments we all accept this so (laughs) frida i think it's time to come to the end and come to our what the fuck moment so frida what was your what the fuck moment (laughs) calculation correct i don't know why the russian accent but Rich Purnell putting the calculations into his computer and then a graphic goes, calculation, correct. And not only that, <laughs> he's, he's obviously using a high-performance computer to do the calculations and he's sitting yeah. against it with a cable running from his computer into the HPC to do the calculations as if there's no other possible way to connect to the computer. What the actual fuck? <laughs> is it not faster if you put it over the cable? <laughs> is it? You just know. launch the job, don't you? Just connect and then you do, you do it. Isn't it? I mean, 
<laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I think they want to sh- us to see the computer. They want us to see the supercomputer that is required to do the calculations that were correct. Yeah, but I. <laughs> But I, so so they wanted they wanted him like sleeping next to the machine. It was like wow, look at him, he's next to the machine, but he could just SSH into it. <laughs> <laughs> that was my what the fuck, and I I actually oh really just loved it, and um, that was more like a source of enormous joy. And you know, I'm, I'm starting to develop a real issue with graphics, like unrealistic graphics, telling yeah. us the audience, <laughs> it's your big problem, <laughs> hacking accomplished. Anyway, that was my what the fuck. It's such a little tidbit. Like it's it's a nothing thing. What what was your yeah. what the fuck? My well, mine is like similar. It's a little thing. It's not a big deal. But like, I, it was just a moment where I was just like, just why? It's totally pointless. I did not enjoy the explanation of the gravity assist. Why? T- tell me why. Because it's the only part in the movie where it was clearly done for the purpose of the audience right. only. Exposition. Which is fine. Yeah. And we've talked about this before, about the whole here comes the science bit. And sometimes you have to explain it and you have to explain it to the audience. And I get that. But you're explaining to the director of, of Mars missions, the director, the flight control director and the director of NASA, how gravity assist works using office stationery. Oh, classic. Uh, yes. Using stationery. Was it with salt and pepper? Was no, the, the salt and pepper was when they were on the crew ship and they did it again using the salt and pepper. And I was like, yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> salt and pepper. But yeah. that one really bugged me because I was like he's explaining it but he's explaining it to people who know what a gravity assist is and you're not explaining yeah. that this is a novel approach to it you're explaining it in a way that like you're literally just using and then oh pen we collect the slide ship and we come back it's like you can use a sentence to explain that to yeah. these people they know what a fucking is so that that really bugged me <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's running around like he's just this nerd and they're like okay that's also in yeah. English, please. Kind of, that's the same sort of, that's yeah. the same line. And it's the same thing with the salt and the pepper. I got, I got to use salt and pepper and just general yeah. condiments to explain things is is so tropey. So tropey. Oh. And you should all know this, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So um, let's let's do final verdicts. Oh, my God. First of all, Abby, um, I just want to say, sorry, Abby, I just want to say, well, well done. Fuck. I just want to say to you, so <laughs> you deserve claps. You deserve some claps. So before we move oh, on, thank like, you. seriously. <laughs> yeah, can't wait to edit it. <laughs> um, okay, okay so verdict. did the movie pass the Bechdel test? Yes. 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 I'm not, yes. And not just in terms of just because you've got named named female characters talking to each other. We had female leaders. We had females in positions of power. And every single person in the movie was concerned with this one man. So it's not an issue whatsoever that that's what the focus is. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it was good women in good roles, in good jobs, doing good shit. Yeah, and it passes the Werdiger test in the sense that all the all the roles for women could have been played by men apart from Kate Mara with the baby at the end but exactly great so did it pass here comes the science uh, 
Yes. You sound super hesitant. Yes. Why are you hesitant? <laughs> no, I just, I said yes, but my why didn't uh, get yeah, out, yeah, yeah, to sure, be honest. Sure. That's what happened. I was like, yes. I meant, yes. Yes. Yes, queen. queen. Yes. Yeah, it did. Yes, it, it passed. Did. Aside yes. from my little annoyance about the explanation of the gravitational assist to the director of NASA, it passed. So, the final verdict. What is your final your final verdict? Um, okay, so I loved it, it but I'm I, I'm gonna take a bit away just because it I found it really fun and like interesting and fun, but it didn't give me an, an emotional gut punch and it didn't like capture me on like a super, super deep level that I like. Oh my god. You know, I wasn't like thinking about it too much after. I was like, that was fun. That was like a fun two hours and 21 minutes. It's okay to have a high spent. scoring fun movie. Not all movies have to gut punch you. <laughs> depressing. I'm giving it a 3.9. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's basically a four. Oh I'm giving it a 3.9. That's a very high score. I can't believe you give the what? fly higher than this. I don't oh, understand you. Like, I really don't. Oh, the fly I was thinking about for a week. Couldn't sleep. I know. I, oh, my God. <laughs> Guys, this is only going to get worse and worse the more movies we go through. <laughs> okay, well, it, Martian is a solid five for me, and that's it. Amazing. Like, it is. It's cool. just, it's okay. such a good movie. So Yeah, no, it's a good movie. I agree. Okay, well, <laughs> considering considering how drastically we're diverging, I'm very excited for you to tell me what the next movie is going to be. <laughs> Are you? Oh shit! Come on, tell me. I'm actually terrified. <gasps> Wally. That's it. Sorry, that's all I've got. <laughs> Wally. Wally. Oh my god! One of my favorite movies, and um. It has a connection to this movie because they both ride around in space by puffing air out the back. <laughs> Segway straight into Wally. This is our first animated movie. And a movie that I love. Amazing. And it's something ha- hopeful and happy. Yay. Which I feel like right now. Hopeful Yay. and happy. Awesome. Um, I've never seen it. <gasps> I've never watched it because it looks sad. Wally. <laughs> and I don't want to cry. Wally. <laughs> but I'm excited to see it. <gasps> I think so I'm going to cry. I'm excited for you. But okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to cry, but it's fine. <laughs> uh, I, don't think that, I don't think that you will. You'll okay. be happy. All right. You'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy um, it. I can't wait. Yay. All right. Well, Wally, that'll be our next episode in two weeks time. So if you'd like to join us, please do Uh, give us a rating if you have time. And please do subscribe to the podcast because it helps us be recognized, which is cool. We just want to be seen. We just want to be seen. No, we want to be heard. We don't want to be seen. That's the point. Women should be heard and not seen. Um, <laughs> so, thank you for listening. If you would like to get in contact, you can email us on scienceatthemovies.gmail.com or you can catch us on Instagram at scienceatthemovies and on Twitter at movies underscore science.